this morning. The title is Right On, But in the Way. And what I mean by right on is correct. They, they got it. They're right on. But somehow they're still in the way of the proper direction. There is so much here in our scripture passage today. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And we're really just going to have to breeze over it. And for those of you who would like to spend some time in your own personal Bible reading time and to personally reflect on these verses, I think that there's a whole lot more blessing for you. And I would encourage you to take time to, to think and to meditate and to pray over these verses because we're just not going to be able to touch on near as much as what I would like to. Mentioned this several times before, but this has been a confusing year, or we could say at this point a year and a half. And as we tried to digest the news reports and the blog posts and our friends and our family and all the opinions that are out there with the pandemic, with race riots, with politics, the question is who's right, who's wrong? On top of that, there's even more confusing reality that people can be right about one important matter, and then it comes to a related matter that's a little bit different but similar. They can be very wrong. So they can be right about something and then wrong about something at the same time. So try to put that into a math equation. Talk about confusion. This is hard, folks. And this is exactly what we're looking at this morning, where the Apostle Peter was right. He was right on, and yet in a related manner, at the same time, he was very wrong. One breath he was right, and a few breaths later, he was very wrong. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at these things. Jesus, we're examining your words and so thankful, Spirit, that you inscripturated them for us faithfully. We ask, God, that you would teach us, illuminate our minds, but Spirit, also where needed, that you would bring conviction, show us where we're wrong and where we have a need of humility, we have a need of learning but also that we would be comforted in your love for us, your faithfulness to us, and your desire for our success and for our hope and our peace. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First this morning, and there is a handout in the bulletin if you'd like to take notes or follow along um, on a piece of paper. First is understanding identity. Understanding identity. And we're going to pick up in our scripture passage today, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
there is just a huge study in and of itself trying to keep track of where Jesus went and when he moved on from one place to the other and any ramification or implications that has for us. We're not able to focus on that this morning, but you know, if we if I were to talk about um, places in France or in Germany, you know, you're not able to just figure it out. If I were to talk about maybe Bremen or or Napanee or Mishawaka, Goshen, South Bend, those are uh, locations that mean something to you. And so there's a blessing for those who would just want to spend some time trying to orient themselves to the different places that Jesus went in the New Testament and what those implications were. In this case, I'll just say one thing. Caesarea Philippi was not known for a heavy Jewish population. And so what we're looking at this morning about the identity of Jesus Christ and the mission that goes along with this, this happened in a place that was very non-Jewish, or we could say pagan, and it seems like an unlikely place for Jesus to strike up a conversation about who he was as the Messiah. So, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, I'll start again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Now, in the original language here, this doesn't come through in English, but the word you is put at the beginning of the sentence to emphasize here. Jesus is emphasizing this word you. We might use inflection in English to emphasize the word you. In the Greek language here, um, uh, they use grammar and word order to have an emphasis here. And so they put the word you. So he's saying, but who do you Say that I am. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This was an on the way conversation. And so as you think about a trip in the car, we're not we don't walk or we don't go in a caravan like they were. Um, during this time, but this this was a trip from one place to the other, and it took a matter of hours, perhaps a matter of days, depending on um, where they were coming from. And so on the way, you can have interesting ways of occupying yourself. And Jesus says the ultimate disciple maker was using this on the way time to teach his disciples concerning who he was. Now, he had been with them for a matter of time. And as we look back on this, it seems rather obvious to us, and well, duh, we already know who he was. But these men, this group of disciples, the 12, but also a larger group besides the 12 disciples, as they traveled from place to place with Jesus, they were still trying to get their minds around who this man was. And so this is a very pivotal passage. So it's an on-the-way conversation, and one of the things that we've done is we're on-the-way places on a longer trip as we play the game of alphabet. Anybody played alphabet in the car? Hey, Sheila has. Ed has. So now at this point in my family life, I am the alphabet master, even though I am the one driving. I think it's because I have, I'm able to see long distances 
But I think that day is changing. Kaylee and Jonathan are getting old enough to where I think I'm going to start to be the loser. Tell you about another on-the-way conversation. Here it is, Chris. I told you it was coming. I had an on-the-way conversation with Chris when he and I, a year and a half ago now, was it two years ago? Almost two years ago, he and I went down to Tennessee to a worship conference. And so poor Chris was in the vehicle with me for several hours on the way down and several hours on the way back. And I started to be a little bit of myself with him. And I would let him have it with one pun after the other until I was getting him flustered. (laughs) What did you say now? (laughs) Chris says it was a very long trip. I can get a little bit ornery that way. And he got the full force of it. Um, Anybody want to go on a trip with me? Then there was my son, James. It was um, three years ago now. Steve and Pat Grubbs moved down to Kentucky, and I drove his moving truck for him. And I took my son, James. So James is, what, seven now? So he would have been four then. And James, I mean, it's kind of little, was like, well, can he go on this trip with me? How's it going to go? But James, even at four, had a reputation for never stopping talking. And he still has that reputation, by the way. And so my wife was like, are you sure you can handle this? He's going to be in the truck with you for hours. I was like, yeah, I should be fine. And so I was kind of curious how long it would take for him to stop talking. And I think it was by the time we got down to Indianapolis, by the time there was, you know, 30 seconds or maybe a minute or two minutes between phrases, and eventually he stopped talking. But it took about two and a half to three hours. So here we have an on-the-way conversation. Several humorous stories I gave you, whereas here with Jesus, he's having a very serious conversation. Sometimes those on-the-way conversations are a great time for serious matters, and so it is. With Jesus. Jesus here brought up the question of who he was. Who he was. And that was a question that was swirling around in the culture. There's questions today in our culture that are swirling around that everybody is talking about. Well, in the culture there, in the Jewish culture, everybody was having this conversation who is this man? It was a big question. And this is really a dividing line in, in Mark, in this Gospel of Mark. Um, it's been building up to this point. The, the scriptures, they're literature. And so, yes, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but even through that, the Holy Spirit works the personality and experience of the authors that the Holy Spirit used, and so it is with Mark. And so Mark here, in the way he is weaving together this book, he has moved to a climax here, um, where, or not a climax, but a turning point to where the questions are swirling around with Jesus and he's having fights and conflicts with spiritual leaders and the crowds are trying to figure him out. And then it comes to this point in a private conversation with his disciples where Jesus officially brings us to the forefront and broaches the question. And he asks them, who am I? And here, in the case of Peter, 
who was the recognized leader of the apostles, of the twelve, he gave a profound answer. He had insight. And he claimed and said that Jesus was the Messiah, which, by the way, the word Christ, he says you are the Christ, has not been used, but maybe one other time in the book of Mark. We think of Jesus Christ as a, as a, well, yeah, that's who he is, but that was not used of Jesus in the book of Mark, except I think the second time here in chapter 8. And then... If you look at your Bible there in the pages, usually there's going to be some sort of cross-reference depending on the edition and the translation. One of those cross-references to Mark chapter 8 is going to be Mark chapter six, or Matthew chapter 16. There's a parallel account where the Gospel writer Matthew gives his uh, rendition of this account. And Matthew adds an extra detail that Mark doesn't. And Matthew says that Jesus responds to Peter and says, you didn't know this about that I'm the Christ on your own, but God the Father lets you know that I am the Messiah. So even here with these men who were the 12 apostles and even the the group beyond the 12 apostles that traveled around with Jesus, this understanding of who Jesus was was a supernatural origin. So it is today. Understanding who Jesus is and claiming him as the Messiah, as your Lord, as your Savior, is a matter of supernatural, but also we have a role today in responding to supernatural revelation like that in faith. There's a temptation among God's people where if I just make it plain enough and obvious enough, if I'm just passionate enough about who Jesus is, that they would have no choice but to respond in faith. And yes, we have a role in making it clear and sharing the good news and being passionate about that, but that does not guarantee that people can see Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. There is still something supernatural that goes along with presenting the gospel and people seeing Jesus for who he is. Next is, why is Jesus trying to keep this a secret? He tells the disciples not to tell anybody. It doesn't really make sense, and it's really confusing unless perhaps you've meditated on this or maybe you've heard some teaching on this. Throughout the gospels, you see that Jesus consistently is telling people not to tell the good news of what he had just done for them. Don't tell anybody I just healed you. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. It doesn't make sense. It seems counterintuitive. It seems opposite. Why would Jesus do that? During the time where, over a period of time, Jesus is presenting himself and presenting his kingdom, there was a huge conflict in people's understanding of who Jesus was. And the prevailing notion that was rising up within the culture is that he was going to be their national king then. In fact, we looked at a few weeks ago where the crowd wanted to take him by force after the feeding of the 5,000 and make him their political king at that moment. 
there was a confusion among the Jewish people at that time. And their biggest thought was, even the disciples, they wanted him to be their national king. And yes, there will be a day when Jesus returns, and that will happen. It hasn't happened yet. But at Jesus' first coming, which we're reading about now, his mission was not to be their national king. He was to be their suffering king and their suffering savior. And if you read your Old Testament scriptures and you study them, it is not clear in the Old Testament that there is a separation between Jesus becoming their national king and being their suffering savior. In fact, you see those things mixed together and you can't tell them apart in the Old Testament. And it's only when Jesus comes in the New Testament that begins to become clear. But over the few years that Jesus was on earth, this was a very confusing matter for God's people. So understanding identity, and then next, misunderstanding mission. Mark chapter 8, picking up in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that he, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I have some words underlined there. I'm going to stop. Um, Son of Man. Um, this is a designation that Jesus used of himself, a label, a name that he used of himself. And the question is, well, what does it mean? And as um, we look at the uh, gospel accounts, Jesus uses the phrase son of man to describe himself far more than any other phrase. There is a reference in Daniel talking about the son of man. And we could spend time on that. That's not my goal this morning. But the primary thing I want you to understand is Jesus used this label for himself this name for himself, the fact that it wasn't clear what it meant was his purpose. Because with that, he was able to avoid the, 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 the wrong ideas that people had about him and what he was doing and instead teach them what he was to be doing. And then I underlined three other words, elders, chief priests, and scribes. And as we think of the leadership of that day, there are multiple groups within that leadership. And here there are three groups that are mentioned. And Jesus is teaching here that he was going to be killed. And after three days rise again was mind blowing. It was totally opposite from everything they thought was going to happen. Verse 32. And Jesus said this plainly. He was making it obvious and clear. And what still happened? And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So here, Jesus begins to teach on mission and on the mission that he was there for. And yes, this was Jesus. But even these men who were around Jesus while he was on earth, what he had to say was just beyond their ability to comprehend. It was deep. It was profound. It was hard. What Jesus was saying to his disciples, it just seemed wrong. 
And when it comes to following Jesus Christ and the mission of living for Him and serving Him as a church, there are aspects of mission that are just hard for us to understand. They are mind-blowing for us. They are complicated. It is confusing. And we have our own wrong notions as we deal with this. And so... I've already touched on this, but it's it's something we need to spend a little bit of time on. Why, just why, didn't they get it? It seems so obvious. But I don't want us to be critical of Peter or the disciples here, because Peter was speaking for the disciples here. Why in the world does someone act that way or say that thing or think that way? How could they not understand it? And as we see in a few moments, Jesus rebukes Peter back. And he uses the word rebuke there the same way that Jesus would rebuke a demon. So Jesus rebuked Peter. What my prayer is for us this morning is that we would have a humility as we consider Peter and the disciples that we can make the same mistake. Because Peter was just right a few minutes ago, and now he is very wrong. And you and I have the same capacity to make a mistake and be right about one thing, and yet in a related thing, be very wrong, even within a few minutes. So the shocking reality for Peter and for us, is that we can know who Jesus was or is, but we can struggle to understand his mission. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've been saved. I've been born again. I know Jesus. You can be confident on that and who Jesus is and who you are in him. And then at the same time, You can struggle in his mission and what it means to live for him. And you don't have a corner in the market in that struggle. We're all there. Yes, we can grow over time in our maturity and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And there is the benefit of faithfully following Jesus Christ. But we all have the capacity to have this struggle. Think of the last year. God's people are struggling with what to do and how to do it. Probably more than any time in my life, as I look on our national scene and on our world scene, I have never seen such sweeping struggle of God's people. I've only been alive almost 40 years. Some of you have probably seen a lot harder times than this. But this is the hardest thing that I've seen in a generation. So as we think about understanding mission, it's it's a challenge. It's, It's hard. We can't think, oh, I've got this. No problem. Folks, this is hard. Yes, we can know who Jesus is and we can know we're in him. And yet we struggle in how to live for him. 
And then how to interact with others as we all together seek to live for Him. Let's recognize, folks, that this is a challenge and there needs to be within us humility. We do not fully understand. We don't have a corner on the market when it comes to wisdom for how to implement God's mission. You and I implement God's mission with weakness and in a faulty way. We don't despair in that. We need to recognize that, be humble about that. We don't despair in that, though, because that's why Jesus is perfect for us. He fulfilled God's mission perfectly for us, and he will finish it perfectly for us when he returns. But in the meantime, as we fulfill our role in trying to live out the mission that Jesus gave us, we don't despair because that's what the cross, death, and burial, and resurrection did for us in Jesus. So that when we become his children, we are saved, we are born again. Jesus had an atonement, a covering for us in his victorious resurrection. He's united to us in that account. And so that we have all that in Jesus. In the meantime, as we try to live it out in weakness and grow in grace, we don't despair. Because Jesus has completed perfectly for us. Yes, we must have confession of sin. But there's no reason for God's children to be overcome by their sin. Because that is the whole point of being in Christ, is He is perfect for you. And you have peace in Christ. There are some folks who live their Christian life in pride and arrogance and self-centeredness and they don't even recognize that they have great weakness. There are others who live their lives in following Christ and they are overcome with despair in their own weakness and they feel like they can't be anything and worth anything and they need to turn their eyes on Christ and let Him be their strength, their peace, their righteousness. As we consider following God's mission, let's consider the greatness of God's thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As we talk about living and trying to live for Christ, as we are in Christ, Colossians chapter 3 is classic. It says in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a lot going on in this earth. But if our minds are fixed and set on this earth, we are missing out on what we have in Christ in heaven and being in Christ. So we set our minds on the things of heaven where our true citizenship is. We find our true purpose and our true direction. That's how our victorious Christian lives. Setting their minds on things on Christ and things above. Not being consumed the things that are here on earth. 
Understanding identity. Misunderstanding mission. And then the resulting conflict. It progresses here, first of all, understanding who Jesus was. But even though they understood who Jesus was, they misunderstood his mission. And because they misunderstood his mission, there was a resulting conflict. And so it is, we see across the world, when people misunderstand who Christ is and what his mission is, there is a resulting conflict, inevitable, everywhere you look. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. And Jesus said this plainly, his teaching on mission. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, Jesus turning, and seeing his disciples, Jesus is taking in the whole situation here. He's realizing, not that he needs to realize, I'm speaking in human terms, but he's turning here and he's seeing the breadth of misunderstanding. Yes, Peter misunderstands, but so do his disciples. But Jesus turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter. And the rebuke there is the same word for shut up or be quiet to demons. Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind, there's that word mind, setting your mind on the things of God. but on the things of man. Conflict over mission. Especially after the last year and a half, the question is, can't we all just get along? And yet as we take this passage in, we see here, even in Jesus' group of disciples, the twelve, the relationship between Jesus and the twelve apostles, there was conflict over mission. That's phenomenal, folks. It's stunning. How could this be? And I know people in the last year, especially in the last year and a half, have become sick of all this conflict. Can we all just get along? Let me bring some reality to this. Since Satan opposed God in heaven and was cast out of heaven, then went to the garden and tempted Adam and Eve. And in his temptation, there was a misrepresentation of missing. Genesis chapter 3. Satan misrepresented God's mission. Since that time, there has been a conflict over mission. And there will be until Jesus returns. But when he does return, that conflict is over. And so as we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, one of the things we look forward to is when the day when he will resolve the conflict over mission. And what a day that will be. But in the meantime, there will be a conflict over mission between nations. 
there will be a conflict of mission between branches of government, Congress, Judiciary, Executive, Parliaments, Prime Ministers, Kings, military commanders. There was a conflict over mission spread out through all the pages of the Old Testament. You don't have to be very sharp biblically to understand that there was a conflict in the Old Testament all throughout about how to live for God. And since the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the inauguration of the church, there has been a conflict over mission within the church. There is a conflict over mission within colleges and seminaries. There is a conflict over mission within our public schools. There's a conflict over mission within our families, between siblings, between spouses. recognizes the conflict is real. But there is something we want to avoid. Peter was an unwitting spokesman for Satan. Now let me make sure this is clear. Peter, this is shocking, Peter was with Jesus in person for a period of time, and yet he still became a spokesman for Satan. Peter was a child of God, and yet he was opposing Jesus Christ on mission as a spokesman for Satan. And so the reasoning goes this way. If Peter could do that, how much more can you and I do it? So the question is, how can we prevent this? Now, the reality is, in our weakness, it's going to happen many times. But God in His mercy, grace, and wisdom overcomes these things in His children through Jesus Christ. So don't despair, my friends. But at the same time as you're wanting to grow in grace, you love God, you want to do what's right, you want to avoid this. So we do have a role. And it does start, my friends, with becoming a child of God. Before you become a Christian, a true born-again Christian, a lot of people name the name, but they are not a Christian. Before you become a true child of God, you are in Satan's kingdom. You're in the kingdom of darkness. That's why God the Father, he, he sent his own son Jesus, because he did not want that for you. He sent Jesus to die for you, to be buried, and to rise again, so that as you believe in Jesus, you might have that victory and not have to bear the guilt of being in Satan's kingdom. But next, as we become a child of God, we must humbly follow God faithfully with our lives. That is a pathway through minimizing 
becoming an unwitting spokesman for Satan. Our lives, especially in the last few hundred years, have become more and more filled with information. 500, 600 years ago, the dissemination of information was much, much less. With the advent of the printing press, and then with the internet here in the last 20, 30 years, and then with TV broadcast and video streaming, our lives are full of information. Even good information. Even, even information from Christian people with a Christian perspective. But none of that is a substitute for humbly and faithfully opening your Bible and spending time with your God in prayer and in the consideration of His Holy Word. We sang about it this morning as we read your Holy Word. So humble faithfulness in following Jesus, spending time in His Word, spending time with His people, Spending time in prayer, privately and corporately. Personal worship, private worship, and public worship. Is how we avoid and minimize this happening. So understanding identity, misunderstanding mission, resulting conflict, and then resetting expectations. And that's what comes next. Jesus and we're really just going to gloss over this. But Jesus then proactively teaches. He, he then calls the crowd to him and he teaches them, this is how you live. So Mark in chapter 8, verse 33. Returning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, again, we're just going to speed over that. There's a lot to consider there. But Jesus here begins to teach a way of living and following him in his mission that is opposite to what the disciples were thinking. And, again, if that's what they were thinking, we're going to struggle the same way. Our natural thinking goes opposite from what it means to follow Christ. This was a hard reset for them. And it, this reset, this training of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, 
needs to occur over a period of time. This is not something, oh, light bulb's on, I got it. It's counterintuitive. It's opposite. It's something we grow in over time. Now, I want to talk to you about crying toddlers and long trips. As some of you know, years and years ago, when Kaylee and Jonathan were, uh, Kaylee was two, Jonathan was one, we drove across the country quite a bit. And it was hard on them, but there were times when they would just start to scream and cry. Here we are on Interstate 80 out in the middle of Nebraska or Wyoming or something. And it was just they cry and cry and cry and cry. And so I learned how to reset their expectations. This is, a key, in my opinion, a great tool for parents. Now, you need to use it wisely. And maybe you just think I'm cruel, but... Here's how I would reset their expectations when they were wailing there in their car seats and we couldn't get them to stop. I'd roll down the windows. And they didn't like all that wind blowing in their face. So they would start crying about that. So I'd give them a gift. I'd roll the windows back up. And they were happy. Ah, Dad rolled up the windows. Crying stopped. Crisis averted Okay, maybe you think I'm cruel. Okay, fine. But I have found that to be an effective tool with, with children. There's times when you need to reset their expectations. Hey, you're fussing about this? Well, it could get worse for you, and it's going to get worse for you for a few minutes until you realize what good you had before. Here, that's what I see Jesus doing. He is resetting their expectations. He is reorienting them to what real life is in the goodness of it and also the challenges of it, of the rewards, but also the, in the meantime, suffering. And my friends, let me just be very clear here, and this is so, so clear here in this text. There is no middle way. Many people in American Christianity and the prosperity we have in America today and the distractions we have, they're trying to live in a middle way and they are empty and they're frustrated and they're discouraged and they have lost their way because they're trying to live like they can live it up now and enjoy all the enjoyments of this world without Jesus being their King and their Lord and living for Him no matter the cost. They're trying to live as if there's a middle way when in fact they're living the wrong way. And there needs to be a reset in what it means to follow Jesus to where he is so important to you that you're willing to pay the cost and you're willing to set aside other things. The idea of losing your soul here is not talking about losing your salvation. It's the idea of the, the, the whole being, yes, body and soul, our whole life here on earth is lost and thrown away when we're living the wrong way. And as we talk about salvation, about becoming a child of God, being saved, being born again, we can't earn that. And it is a confession of faith. But there is a way of living that is linked to becoming a Christian, becoming a child of God. They are not totally unlinked. So if someone professes Christ and yet their whole of their life, year after year after year, is living the opposite. The scriptures teach that there is a cause for concern whether they're truly born again. It doesn't mean you don't have years. 
When you struggle and you do wrong, that's not my point. There are some people who claim Christ and have zilch evidence. Those are the folks that need to be concerned if they're truly born again. There are folks who we struggle. Yes, we have fruit, but we have lots of struggles too. Your concern is to grow in grace and claim Christ and what He has done for you and know that there is plenty of grace and mercy and love for you to grow and learn to do what's right. But my friends, you need to be reoriented. You need to have that hard reset that there is no middle way. Either you're making Christ your Lord and living for Him no matter the cost and setting aside anything else that distracts you or you're living in a way that's throwing away your life. Understanding identity, misunderstanding mission, the resulting conflict because of that, and then Jesus teaching and resetting expectations of what it means to live for Him. One point of application this morning. Do you have a humble heart in letting God teach you about his mission for you? Spend a few minutes responding to the Lord in prayer.